Okay, before we move ahead, I want to go back just to one matter on page 9 at the bottom of the page, talking about the fact that we must interpret Old Testament or Old Covenant prophecies in the light of their New Covenant fulfillment. And the question that I want to ask here is, who would have guessed in reading Malachi 4-5, in talking about Elijah coming first, who would have guessed that that prophecy would have been fulfilled in John the Baptist? And yet the Lord Jesus said, if you will receive it, he is, John, he, he is Elijah who was for to come. Uh, we, and we have that in other passages. My, con my, my contention is that we should not expect, based on Jeremiah 31 through 34, a restoration of national Israel any more than we should expect, based on Jeremiah 30, verse 9, Ezekiel 34, verses 23 and 24, Ezekiel 37, verses 24 through 25, a literal restoration of David to the throne of Israel. Now, there are some dispensationalists who have said that, yes, David is going to reign. He will be God's regent during the millennium. But I think most dispensationalists today acknowledge that what is really being said here is that the antitypical David, the fulfillment of David, the Lord Christ, is going to sit on the throne. Um, and, and so that's, that's a very important matter. But in, in Jeremiah 30, verse 9, for instance, but they shall serve the Lord their God and David their king whom I will raise up for them. In my view, that is fulfilled in the raising up of Christ to sit on the throne of David. In, in um, Ezekiel 34, 23 and 24, Then will I set over them one shepherd, my servant David, and he will feed them, and he will feed them himself and be their shepherd. And I, the Lord, will be their God, and my servant David will be prince or ruler among them. I, the Lord have spoken. And then again in Ezekiel 37, and my servant David will be king over them. And they shall all have how many? One shepherd. One shepherd. And they shall walk in my ordinances and keep my statutes and observe them. And they shall live on the land that I gave Jacob, my servant, in which your fathers lived, and they will live on it and and um, their sons and their sons forever, and David, my servant, shall be their prince forever. 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 Even, even if we grant that there is a millennium that is a threshold for the eternal kingdom, and David sits on that throne. Even got the pre-mills back there. Isn't that great? I love it. He's with me. Even if we grant that, even if we grant that, if we take the text literally, dear ones, it says not a thousand years, it says forever. Forever. He's going to reign forever. I will make a covenant of peace with them. It will be an everlasting covenant with them. And I will place them and multiply them, and I will set my sanctuary in their midst forever. It's already begun it. We are parts of it. We are... We are the precious stones, the precious building blocks that make up that glorious sanctuary. We are built for an habitation of God by the Spirit, Ephesians chapter 2 tells us. Seems clear to me that these verses refer to the antitypical David, Christ himself, yet based on the hermeneutic of, 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 of dispensationalism, the interpreter would be forced to insist that for these texts to be fulfilled, David must literally be resurrected and restored to the throne of Israel. 
Um, I don't know, you have to ask uh, someone else. I don't know where the other half is. Thank you. Even the Old Testament scriptures at times refer the term Israel not to the whole nation but to the faithful within the nation. This seems to accord with what Paul has to say in Romans and chapter 9. They are not all Israel which are of Israel. Now I thoroughly agree with what Fred had to say about that passage. That passage does not say that everyone who is a member of the church, Jew and Gentile, is part of spiritual Israel. You can believe that if you want, but you can't get it out of that text. Nor can you get that out of the text back in Romans chapter 2. What the text is saying clearly in both those places, as, as Fred said yesterday, what the text is saying clearly in both those places is that the true Israel are those ethnic Israelites who are the elect of God and who have come to faith in Christ. They are the true Israel. That's clearly what the text is saying. But I would disagree with Fred in saying that what Paul is doing in that passage is that he is, he is developing chapter 11 and verse 1. It seems to me that what Paul is doing throughout chapters 9 through 11 of Romans is developing the question in, in chapter 9 and verse 6 that has been raised and Paul answers the question. The question is, have the promises of God to Israel fallen to the ground? That's the objection. And if the promises of God to Israel have fallen to the ground, then what about the promises of God to us? If he was unfaithful to them, then can we depend on it that he will be faithful to us? And Paul says, of course we can. How can we? And the answer to the question is, God's promises have not fallen to the ground. For, for they are not all Israel, which are of Israel. It was not that nation that God had in view when he made the promises. It was his elect within that nation. And it is that nation that will live as his seed before him, indeed as a nation before him, forever. And we are brought into that nation by the grace of God, that spiritual nation. Even though that's not what that particular text is talking about, I think we're going to see quite clearly when we come to Hebrews chapter 8 that what he has to be saying there, if we have anything to do with it at all, at all, he has to be saying, we are the true nation, the true people of God. We are the Israel of God because we are in him who is the Israel of God, the Lord Jesus Christ. You see, the issue, it seems to me, in, in Romans chapters 9 through 11, is will God, indeed is God, true to his promise? And Paul's answer in 11.26 is, yes, God is true to his promise. And every single ethnic Israelite who is the true Israel of God will finally be brought to faith in Jesus Christ. Notice that Paul does not say in that text in Romans, 9, in Romans 11, God is going to graft them in again. He does not say that. What he says is, and they, if they continue not in unbelief, that's a big if. If they continue not in unbelief. 
And then he says, God is able to graft them in again. Will he? In a, in a, a large, sweeping revival at the last day? Oh, wouldn't that be glorious? Wouldn't that be glorious if he did? But I don't think you find in that text the promise that that is going to happen. All he is saying, it seems to me, is every single one of his elect within natural Israel to whom God intended the promise in the first place, which is in Christ, all bound up in him, every single one of those, whether gradually during this period of time or in a great sweeping awakening at the end, through faith in Christ, through the preaching of the gospel, every one of them will be saved. And he bases that on the fact that God has made a covenant with them. This is my covenant with them when I will take away their sins. And I think he refers not to the application of it, but to the accomplishment of it. In other words, the center of our eschatology as the center of everything else that we believe must be the cross work of Jesus Christ. The cross is the heart of New Covenant theology. It isn't what he's going to do when he comes the second time. It's what he did when he came the first time. And what he's going to do when he comes the second time is all based on what he did the first time. He accomplished it there. It seems to me, seems to me that one of the problems that we have with reference to this whole matter is that, is that we don't believe somehow that the covenant is in force until Israel ratifies it by her belief. That, that seems to be the position of some. What we need to understand is that God's covenants are not, are covenants are not like man's covenants. They are not bilateral covenants. It is not that we sit down with God and say, look, let's, let's strike an agreement. No. This is so bad, DJ's walking out. <laughs> he, told me, he told me if I started getting off the subject, he'd put up one finger, and if, he, if I really got off, he'd put up two, and I must have missed that because he's leaving. <laughs> okay. I Got a yawn. Okay. He did. He didn't, he didn't want me to catch him. <laughs> oh, brother, you know, you, you can yawn in my face, but I have to say to someone who would be thought to be in my camp, I don't know how you can yawn in DJ's face. I, you know, I, how you can yawn when that's going on, I have no idea. I was talking about something earlier here. What was it? Oh, yes. I remember that. How does God make covenants? We don't sit down and strike a bargain with God. God doesn't say, how do you like this plan? Do you, do you want to accept this? No. No, God's covenants are unilateral. God says this is the way it's going to be, like it or not. We like it. That's what, that's what a covenant is. It is a divine disposition. God says this is it. And you don't have to wait for someone to say, okay, I think that's a great idea. Let's ratify the covenant. Uh, he did it. He has ratified the covenant. It's been put into effect. Now, the question that I have is, well, how come he talks about Israel? How come he says, Israel, 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 a nation, a nation? You know, I, th I think we need to consider something that may not have been considered carefully enough. It was, it is not only with that spiritual nation 
of which we are now a part, and for that nation that Christ made the covenant. It was in the context of that nation of Israel, literally, that the covenant was ratified. And that was of true of necessity in God's economy. Why? Why does he say to the house of Israel and to the house of Judah? Why does, he, why does he use those terms? Because these are the two parties that make up those who were under the old covenant. They're the ones that had blown it as the representative of the whole race. They stood as a paradigm for all of us. What they did was exactly what we would have done. And God made a test case of them. How are, you, how are these human beings going to handle my righteous requirements? We'll see in the, in the experience of Israel. There they are. They're a paradigm. They're, they're an example of all of us. God gave them the law and what did they do with it? That's why, the, that's why the new covenant is necessary. Look at it in the text. Jeremiah 31, 31, Behold, the days come, saith the Lord, that I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah, not according to the covenant that I made with their fathers in the day that I took them by the hand to lead them out of the land of Egypt, which covenant they broke, although I was an husband to them. The writer of the epistle to the Hebrews says the reason God says anything about a new covenant is because the old covenant was faulty. Now, he's not saying there was anything wrong with the covenant in doing what God had given it to do. The old covenant performed its task splendidly. It did exactly what it was intended to do. It, it, it increased sin, turned it into transgression. No longer is sin merely missing the mark. Now sin is deliberately, willfully stepping over a known boundary. And it's saying to God, in your face, in your face, I'll do what I want to do because I want to be God for myself. Who do you think you are? Who do you think you are to give me such a law and expect me to keep it? I'll do what I want to do. And the sad truth is that that's exactly how Israel treated God's law. Hosea said, my people, God said through Hosea, Hosea my people are like a heifer that continues to draw back from my yoke. It's not a backsliding heifer. It's a heifer that says, I'm going to be stubborn in rebellion. I'm not going to wear God's yoke. I'll do my own thing. See, the problem was not with the law itself. The problem was that the law was given to sinners. There's the problem. That's where the law was faulty. Because we needed something that could deal with people as sinners. Because that's what we are. That's what Israel was. They were sinners. All the problems that that law erected for us. Paul talks about our relationship, our union with Adam and with Christ. And he tells us that we have been doomed and damned in Adam. And then he says, as if that weren't bad enough. I mean, we, we're dead meat already, but if, as if that weren't bad enough. Along came the law. The law came in alongside in order that the trespass might abound. And all the trespass abounded. The law said, thou shalt and thou shalt not. And the sinner said, I'll do it or bust. I'm the master of my fate. I'm the captain of my soul. Who does God think he is to tell me what to do? Israel and Judah had failed and failed miserably. So much so that the northern ten tribes had effectively become pagans. 
and were treated as pagans. That's how I see that passage in Romans chapter 9, which talks about the, the, the bringing in of the Gentiles. Israel had become typically pagans. And they had to be restored as pagans. They were no longer worshipers of the one true God. So he says, I'm going to make peace. <laughs> I'm going to give them a covenant of peace. I'm going to bring these two alienated parties, the house of Israel, the house of Judah, back together in Christ. They were wicked sinners, these Israelites. I love that old hymn by Bonar that says, Ah, my iniquity crimson hath been. Infinite, infinite sin upon sin. And you expect him to launch into a, a period of confession when he, in which he says, I was a terrible adulterer. Oh, I was a wicked bank robber. I went out and killed people. I murdered. He doesn't say that. He doesn't say that. Ah, my iniquity, he says. Sin has gone over me. What was his sin? You remember? Sin of not loving thee. Sin of not trusting thee. Infinite, infinite sin. And these wicked rebels said it's too far to drive to church down in Jerusalem. They don't have a good youth program down there. The choir, you know, those doleful dirges. These, these people sing, these people who believe in the sovereignty of God. We, we, can, we cannot away with it, this solemn assembly. Let's, let's start our own church. Let's build our own altar. And so they split. They went up north. And they said, we're going to do things our way. God says, I'm going to make a covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah. Oh, listen, there's hope there. <laughs> there's hope there. Oh, listen, we can stand and we can, we can preach to wicked rebels. We can, we can preach to those who have wasted their substance in riotous living. We can preach to those who are down and out. We can preach to the bum who's wallowing in his own vomit in the gutter. And we can say to him, there's hope. There's hope. We can talk to that prostitute who's sold her body, has been defiled, degraded, walked on, and we can say to her, there's hope. We have a God who will not only forgive your sins, we have a God who will restore you. There's restoration for you. He'll restore the years that the locusts have eaten. He'll make your flesh as child's flesh. He'll restore it. That's the kind of God we have. He's able to take those that are far off and bring them nigh in Jesus Christ. That's what he's saying. Further, I think he's saying in this text that further, further he's saying here in the text, it seems to me that I'm going to make a covenant in the context in which the old covenant was broken. Where was it that Israel sinned? Where was it that sin had abounded, greatly abounded? Where was it? It was under the law, under the old covenant. And here's what, here's what the, the text says. In Romans chapter 5. But where? Where? Sin abounded. Grace. Much more abounded. Our Lord Jesus was not born into a pristine unfallen world. He was made of woman. 
made and born into a fallen world. A world that hated him and hounded him. Did everything they could to kill him because they saw God in him. They said, let's tear God from his throne. We can't get at him. Let's get the air. Let's kill him. They hated him. Oh, he was made of woman. He felt what we feel. He experienced the testings and the trials that we experience. There's nothing that you felt that he didn't feel. Sin apart. But he, the text also tells us he was made under the law. Why was he made under the law? To redeem them that were under the law. Who was under the law? Israel was under the law. He comes, he accomplishes the work in redeeming his true Israel. And I don't, I don't mean by that believing Jews and Gentiles. I mean ethnic Israelite. He came in that context. He came for all those that look for redemption in Israel. <laughs> That's what he came for. Came for those who were looking for redemption in Israel. And he redeemed them from the curse of the law. You see, the point is, it was where sin abounded. It was on the stage of redemptive history under the old covenant that the Messiah came. And under that covenant, having fulfilled the law perfectly and completely for his people, he died then under the penalty of that law and he fulfilled that covenant establishing the new in the process. That's why he says the house of Israel and the house of Judah. Another reason, it was to them first. It was to them first as an ethnic people that the gospel went. Look at Acts chapter 3. He talks here about that prophet, the new Moses whom the Lord is going to raise up like unto him. And then the text says, and, and him shall you hear. And it shall come to pass that every man that does not hearken to the voice of that prophet shall be cut off from among the people. Verse 23, yea, verse 24, and all the prophets from Samuel and those that follow after, as many as have spoken, have likewise foretold of these days. And you are the children of the prophets and of the covenant which God made with our fathers, saying in Abraham, And in thy seed shall all the kindreds of the earth be blessed unto you first. And he's not talking here about Jews and Gentiles. He's speaking here primarily to Jewish people, ethnic Israelites. Unto you first. God, having raised up His Son Jesus, sent Him to bless you in turning away every one of you from His iniquities. That's the burden of the covenant. It really is. Now listen. Listen to what He says. What did the prophets prophesy of? Did the prophets prophesy concerning that silver or that golden age that is yet to come? According to this text. And the answer is no. All the prophets have prophesied and foretold concerning these days. These days. And what about these days? What is it that has happened in these days that sets them off from the former days? And the answer is, He has come. He has come to turn away every one of you from His iniquities. That's what it's all about, folks. Go back with me then to, well... Uh, yeah, let's, let's, let's go to a couple of other passages because I, I think we need to look at them. Galatians chapter 3. 
I should have learned from Brother DJ last night because he had us look at our watches before we began. I should have had you look at your watches. We were about a half hour late getting started in the second session, and that was because we were about a half hour getting late in the first session. And so I'm going to beg leave of you to keep going until someone throws something at me. Okay? Galatians chapter 3. Boy, I was thinking if I preached long enough, I wouldn't have to answer questions, John. <laughs> you have to admire a guy for trying, though, don't you? What can I say? Well, Galatians chapter 3, verse 10. For as many as are of the works of the law are under the curse. For it is written, Cursed is everyone that continues not in all things which are written in the book of the law. Notice, please, he does not say on the tables of stone. He's not talking about Ten Commandments that were sacrosanct and, and separate somehow from the rest. He says, Cursed is everyone that does not continue in all the words that are written in this book of the law to do them. If you are responsible for one of them, you are responsible for all of them. And if you are under that law, then you are under the curse. Who was under the law? Read Romans chapter 2 and it will tell you the Gentiles weren't, the Jews were. Don't have to expound on that, I think, in this group. But it was Israel that was under the law. But that no man is justified by the law in the sight of God, it is evident, verse 11, for the just shall live by faith, and the law is not of faith. But the man who does them shall live by them. Christ has redeemed us from the curse of the law. Whom did Christ re re redeem from the curse of the law? He redeemed those that were under the curse of the law. Christ has redeemed us from the curse of the law. How did he do it? Being made a curse for us. For it is written, Cursed is everyone that hangs on a tree. And the King James says, In order that the blessings of Abraham might come on the Gentiles through Jesus Christ. Those of you who are looking at your Greek text will know that Paul places the Gentiles in the emphatic position. In order that on the Gentiles might come. In other words, there is a clear and sharp contrast between what he has done in relieving the Israelites under the curse and the blessings of Abraham coming on the Gentiles. In other words, the blessings of Abraham come on the Gentiles because he has fulfilled his promises in the context of Israel and, and to elect Israelites. That the blessings of the Abraham uh, that, that on the Gentiles might come the blessings of Abraham. How? Where? Again, in the text of the King James it says through. In the Greek text it says in. Where do these blessings come to fruition? In Christ. In Christ. That's where the treasures of wisdom and righteousness and all the rest, they're all locked up in Him. Well, if you understand all your theology, and you can prove it to the gnats bristling, you don't know Him. Not worth a dime. 
not worth a dime. It's all about him. Okay, one more passage that I think is somewhat parallel. By the way, compare this to chapter 4 at your leisure, where he says uh, he was made under the law to redeem them that are under the law, that we might receive the adoption of sons. I think he's talking there about Jews and Gentiles in Christ, that we might receive. But you see, the curse had to be dealt with, and it was dealt with in the context of Israel's history. It was on the stage of, of, of Israel's history that the drama of redemption was executed. It was where sin had abound, that grace superabounded. Listen, folks, it went deeper. It went deeper than the stain of sin had ever gone. Okay, one more passage, Hebrews chapter 9. Verse 15, and for this cause he is the mediator of the New Testament, the new covenant, that by means of death, we're in 9.15 of Hebrews, that by means of death for the redemption of the transgressions, this is one of two times where the word transgression is used in the book of Hebrews. Both of them have to do with those who were under the old covenant. That by means of redemption for the, uh, of the transgressions, that were under the first covenant, they which are called might receive the promise of the eternal inheritance. It seems to me that he goes back to Joel's prophecy in this, in which, in, in which it's whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. Whosoever shall call on him. The promise is to you if you'll call. The promise is to your children if they'll call. The promise is to all that are afar off, even alienated Israel. If they'll call. And he makes the promise sure to all the seed. How does he do that? Because he deals with those transgressions that were under the first covenant. How can he say to you, I'll, I'll remember your sins and iniquities against you no more? How can he say that? I'll tell you why. Because he's already dealt with them. He's canceled the debt. Oh, listen, he paid it all. He did it. He nailed it to his cross, taking it out of the way. I don't need to fear the law anymore. Do I, do I love the law? Do I look back there and I say, well, my God was revealing himself back there. My Lord and Savior is revealed there. Yes, yes, I love the law because it does that. I don't fear it anymore. It's already killed me. It's already killed me. It can't do any more to me. Because my sin... Oh, the bliss of this glorious thought. Oh, the bliss. My sin, not in part, but the whole, is nailed to the cross, and I bear it no more. Praise the Lord. Praise the Lord, O oh my soul. I love that hymn we sang last night from the Gadsby Hymnal. You may not have known it was from the Gadsby Hymnal. It was. Here's what the, here's what the, the, the words say. O oh, love, how high thy glories dwell. How great, immutable, and free. 10,000 sins as black as hell are swallowed up. O oh, love in thee, love when a wretch, defiled by sin, at war with heaven and league with hell, a slave to every lust obscene, who living live but to rebel. Ah, believer, believer, here thy comfort stands. From first to last, salvation's free. It's not cheap. Not cheap. Oh, it's free. It's free. 
Why is it free? Why is it free? Because Jesus paid it all. He paid it all. He took the law in hand. And he said, I'm here to do battle. I'm here to do what no Israelite before me has ever been able to do. I have come, I delight to do thy will, O my God, yea, thy law is within my heart. He didn't mean he had the, the Ten Commandments inscribed on his heart. What he meant was, I love my Father above all else, and therefore I delight to do that which pleases and glorifies and honors him. He was able to say, I, I do always, always those things that please my Father. And that's what I'm here for, to please my Father, but not just for myself, but for all those who are in me. And he fulfilled every single jot and tittle of the law. There was nothing whatsoever left unfilled when he got finished. One of the old dispensational, dispensational writers said when the old covenant period closed, or the old dispensation closed, the promises of God were left totally unfilled. And I said, yes. Yes. But listen, when Jesus got finished, none of them were unfulfilled. For however many promises of God there may be, however many there may be, what do they find? They find their yea and their amen in Him. Here's your comfort. From first to last, salvation's free. What? An everlasting love demands an everlasting song from thee. I heard a preacher say a few weeks ago, if that won't ring your bell, you ain't got no clapper. <laughs> Boy, he was right. I feel so sorry for people that can't enjoy the party. I really do. We had a great party here last night. We really did. We weren't celebrating Lynn, Lynn's birthday. We were celebrating the Lord Jesus Christ who loved us and gave himself for us. Didn't you have fun at the party? You know, there was that old mossy-backed son who had been home with his father all that time. And he'd been out working and working and working and working and working and working. Oh, he was working. He was so faithful. Like a slave, he was working. He was. And listen, he said, I got to do something. I got to keep doing it because if I don't, Dad's going to be as upset with me as he was about that son that went from home. And I want to I maintain Dad's good favor and so I'm going to keep on, keep on, keep on, keep on. And I'm going to keep on. But oh, I don't, know, I don't know when I've done enough. I don't know when I've done it. I've got to keep on. In fact, after the, the, son, the other son had come home, you know where he was? He was still out there working and working and working. And working. And the father had been doing something else. He wasn't, he wasn't concerned about that old son out there in the field working. He was out there looking. He was on the front porch and he was looking down the road. He's coming. I know he's coming. I don't know when, but I'm going to keep watching. I know, I know. There the analogy breaks down because our father does know. And he does know because he caused it, he planned it, it's, it's, it's going to happen. It's not like the weather prognosticators that say, well, tomorrow we have, you know, and then, well, we were wrong. We looked into our little crystal ball and we saw this, but, you know, this happened and that happened and this other contingency. And, they, you know, they always apologize for the weather forecast. That's not our God. He doesn't just foresee, he determines. 
This father was out here. He's watching. My son's coming home. Oh, listen, my, my heart, my heart is enlarged for him. I long to see him. And when he comes, I'm going to embrace him. How do I know he's looking? Because the scripture says when he was yet a great way off, the father saw him. He saw him because he was looking for him. And he ran. He ran. And he embraced him, fell on his neck and kissed him. And he said, my son, my son, this my son was dead and is alive. He was lost, but he's found. And the scripture says they started having a party. They began to be merry. The Lord is in his holy temple. Let all the earth, all the earth keep silence before him. Listen, if you're a silent type, you just go ahead. But listen, you better be rejoicing inside. I got, an, I got news for you. There's going to be some noise in heaven. If, you, if you're not... DJ's going to be there. That's right. DJ's going to be there. You know there's going to be noise there. You better get used to noisy worship down here if you're going to enjoy up there. Those people were so undignified, they fell on their faces before the throne. Oh, that we might be not slain in the spirit as we see this stuff, but oh, that God just might so come over us. That we are lost in wonder and awe and adoration in His holy presence. Oh, that's what we need. Oh, what's, what's, what's the person sitting beside me going to think if I put up my hand? Close my eyes. Oh, yes, Lord. What are they going to think? Who cares? Who cares? Doesn't make any difference. The older son came in from the field. And the scripture says, he said to the servant, what, what's going on in there? What's, he, what's going on in there? Well, he said, you know, that brother of yours, that rascal that left home a while back, he's come home. You know what your father's done for him? He killed for... You remember that, that calf that was out there in the stall? Your father's been fattening up that calf. He's been fattening up that... You know that fatted calf out there? Your father killed that fatted calf and they're having a party in there. You know what the text says? The elder brother was what? He became angry. He became angry and would not go into the party. Boy, you talk about the condescension of God. You know what his father did? The father came out. He came out to the other son, the elder son. And he said, son, come on into the party. Come on into the party. Legalists can't enjoy the party. They really can't. They can't enjoy the party. And I'm not saying, if you feel constrained about your worship, I'm not saying, look, do something that that's totally contrary to you. I'm not saying that. I'm saying that just don't be afraid to be yourself. Let your hair down when you come to worship God. That's the kind of worship and adoration that God is looking for from His people. Go to the party. Enjoy the party. Where does that kind of joy come from? I'll tell you where it comes from. It comes from the fact that God Himself has come, has manifest Himself in the likeness of sinful flesh, and for sin has condemned sin in the flesh, that the righteousness that is required by the law might be fulfilled in us, 
who walk not after the flesh, but after the Spirit. That's where it comes from. What are the promises of the covenant? Let's look at them. Go back to Hebrews 8. Trying to get back to the subject a, a little bit. <clears throat> Thank you. Thank you. Chapter 8 of Hebrews. This is the covenant. This is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days. He doesn't now say with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah. He now says with the house of Israel. To whom does this belong? In reality, the rejoicing that has been going on here this morning in the truth of God is something we really can't rejoice in if this is Israel's covenant as a nation alone. In this text, it seems to me that the Israel about which he is speaking has to be the new covenant people of God now. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, saith the Lord. I will put my laws into their minds. In other words, he's going to teach us what we ought to do. Paul said to the Thessalonians, I don't have to teach you to love each other. The, whole, the God, God himself has taught you that. Listen, if you have trouble, if you have trouble loving, you got trouble. You got trouble. He doesn't say we love each other because we have the same color skin. No, he doesn't. There's that, there's that difference. Oh, we have differences. If you come to the church where I preach and you come to the church where DJ preaches, you're going to see differences. The reason is white men can't jump. I'm, I'm working. I'm working on them. I'm working on them. Some can. David. David is in disguise. <laughs> it, it, uh, I told DJ the other night, I, I grew up in the South, and I was... It wasn't so much my parents, although they had their own problems in that regard, but other people would say things to me. I, I, did, I never went to school with a black person until I was in high school. I was, I was ready to graduate. And I don't think I'd ever touched one before. You know? And I was told all manner of things. And I believed them. I mean, down in the South, and I, I'm not saying this, I'm not saying this to... This is sad. This is horrible. We had, we had water fountains for colored people. And I looked at my skin. It's colored. And we, had, we had water fountains for white people. And I wasn't white, so I just about died of thirst. <laughs> and then there were restrooms for colored people. And there were restrooms for white people. And that's the way I grew up. Black people went to the back of the bus. White people went to the front of the bus. Then one day God got a hold of my heart. And that, boy, that changes things. He said, you pompous, pompous. You know what? 
God didn't say that. No, God didn't say that. Who do you think you are? If you're different, who made you to differ from another? And what do you have that you do not receive? And if you received it, why do you boast? Well, you let that verse get in your heart and start working around. It'll change you. Really will. Who do you think you are? Well, I don't like the way the way DJ preaches or the way he worships. I don't care whether you like it or not. God loves it. And he, he might look at us and say, you guys didn't get excited enough last night. You never would have believed that. But, you know, you got to get excited. <laughs> I don't like that, he says. Who cares? If you're offering it as sacrifice and worship in the presence of a holy God, who cares? He's the one we care about. That's why in my younger days I saw so much of this froth and foam and it was loud and boisterous and all that, all that garbage. And the, the reason that was wrong is because there was no substance to it. People were saying amen about things they didn't need to be saying amen about. They were getting excited about stuff the Scripture never said. But listen, if they can get excited, why can't we get excited? Let me tell you something. Being a New Covenant Christian is going to cause you to love because love fulfills the law. The text, listen to me now, listen to me carefully. The, the text does not say, he that loves is going to keep the Ten Commandments. That is not what the text says. The text says, he that loves has fulfilled the law. This is what the law is looking for. This is what God is looking for. And the law could never produce that. <clears throat> Run, do, and live, the law demands. Yeah. <laughs> but gives me neither feet nor hands. Love God! But I don't love Him. I don't love Him. Love your neighbor! But I don't love Him. I can't do that! Let me tell you something. Once the gospel gets into your soul, once the truth of the work of Jesus Christ, God's Redeemer gets into your soul, He'll teach you to love. And the righteousness required by the law is fulfilled in us who walk not after the flesh, but after the Spirit. Not perfectly yet. This is the already not yet. Not perfectly yet. But listen, it's begun. I don't love, I don't love DJ the way I ought to love him. I don't love these other black, black brethren here the way I ought to love them. I don't love those northerners that come down to Florida every winter and clog up the highways the way I ought to love them. I love you people a whole lot more up here than I do when you're down there. <coughs> Dick, that was humor. <laughs> it's progressive. <coughs> Listen, that's, that's how the law is written in our hearts. God teaches us what to do, and he gives us a desire to do it. I had people, I've had people say to me, listen, I've, I've heard in my church that it doesn't make any difference what you do and how sincerely you do it. God really isn't going to be pleased with it because it's always going to be tainted by sin. And everything you do, everything you do in the Christian life is tainted by sin. You sin daily in thought, word, and deed, and everything you do unacceptable. And they've said to me, I just want to give up. God's not going to accept it anyway, well, I'll offer it to him. And I said, Paul said to the Philippians, it is God who works in you, both to will 
and to do what? Of His good pleasure. These are acceptable sacrifices that we offer to Him. Why can we do that? Why can we do that? Because we're in Christ. We are priests ministering in the sanctuary of God. In the land that God has given us. The land of rest in Jesus Christ. There's an internal, internal law in our hearts. What's it, what else? What else does he do for us? <clears throat> he makes us his true people. Not just his typical people. Israel was the typical people of God. They were the people of God in that sense. But you see, they were pointing forward to something else, something better. We are the fulfillment of that. He calls us, He calls us His people. He calls Himself our God. I think it was Thomas Oliver's who wrote, He calls Himself my God. No, he, he calls a worm his friend. He calls himself my God. We can know. Oh, think of it. We can know God. We can call him our God. That's why the, that's why the writer says in 2 Corinthians, having therefore these promises, brethren, these promises, what are they? I will be your God and you shall be my people. And that is fulfilled in us. Fulfilled. He goes on. He goes on. And they shall no longer teach, verse 11, every man his neighbor and every man his brother, saying, Know the Lord. They shall all know me. From the least to the greatest. They shall all know me. You know what he's saying? He's saying every member of the covenant community is going to be a believer in Jesus Christ. He's going to know God. You don't have to say to the guy that's sitting beside you in church who's made a profession of faith or who has been baptized as an infant or sprinkled as an infant, you don't have to say to him, listen, brother, you need to know the Lord. You don't have to preach conversion to church members. You don't have to say to them, know the Lord. Because members of the covenant community and the new covenant know the Lord. Is there a fuller fulfillment of that? Obviously there is. Obviously there is. There is coming that day when the knowledge of the glory of God shall cover the earth as the waters cover the sea. It's going to happen. I believe it with all my heart. It's already begun. It's already begun. And then he says, And I will be merciful to their unrighteousnesses and their sins and their iniquities will I remember no more. How does that contrast with the Old Covenant? And the answer, the answer is found over in chapter 10. In chapter 10 we read, For the law having a shadow of good things to come. That's what the law was all about. It was a shadow of good things to come. It was not the very image. If it was the very image... If what Israel had was all it's going to get as the type, if, that's, if, that's, if it doesn't get any better than that, 
where's the fulfillment? If it just goes back to that, where's the fulfillment? The law having a shadow of good things to come and not the very image of the things can never with those sacrifices which they offered year by year continually make the comers thereunto perfect or complete. For then would they not have ceased to be offered? Because that the worshippers once purged should have had no more conscience of sins, that is, they should have had, have had no more consciousness of guilt in the presence of God. Let me ask you a question this morning. Do you have consciousness of guilt in the presence of God? When you go into the presence of God, do you say, well, I, don't, I just don't think I can do this because I remember, I remember this and I remember that and I remember that, this other thing that I did. And yeah, I've confessed it, but boy, the pastor told me that I, I probably am not even a real Christian. I've, he told me to put my finger on my spiritual pulse and check myself out. And that's to be my daily, every moment activity, looking in my, in my heart and wondering and striving. And oh boy, I just, I can't go, I can't come into the presence of God. I'm such a guilty, vile sinner. Why would I want to pray? Why, how could I come in there? How could I come in there? And the only way is if a, if a sacrifice is finally offered, they can take away sins. Because if a sacrifice is finally offered that will take away sins, then we, those who the, the sacrifice has been offered for, will have no more consciousness of guilt before God. Let me tell you something. That has happened. That has happened. The sacrifice has been offered. It is finished. And then he says, for then, uh, verse, uh, verse 3, but in those sacrifices there is a remembrance again made of sins every year. Why was the sacrifice offered? It wasn't offered to take away their sins in the true sense of the word. It was to remind them that they were still sinners who needed a better sacrifice. Look at the end of this section in chapter 10. He again quotes the new covenant. He says in verse 15, Wherefore the Holy Spirit is a witness to us, for after that he had said before, This is the covenant that I will make with them after those days, saith the Lord, I will put my laws in their hearts, and in their minds will I write them, and their sins and their iniquities will I remember no more. That's in contrast to what he said in the first part of the passage. Every year, remembered, remembered, remembered. Now, remembered no more. No more. That doesn't mean that God has developed amnesia and that his omniscience has failed. What it means, here's what it means. It means that God has said, I know what you are. I know everything you are. I know about you past, present, future. I know it. But it's all paid. It's all paid. You know, I, I like to watch the O.J. Simpson trial. I think that's fascinating. My friend down in Florida... My friend down in Florida says that he got so convicted about that that he had to cut back to three hours a day. I, I enjoy watching that trial, and, and, and it's, it's interesting as you hear the evidence back and forth. One day you say, well, he's, he is, maybe he is, maybe he isn't. One day you say, well, he isn't, and so forth, back and forth. And, you know, the fear is there's, there's this discovery thing, you know. There's this discovery thing. We have, we have this. We're not going to show it to you because we don't want you to know what it is. We're going to hang on to it over here. Discovery, discovery. And the fear is somebody's going to come in with something the other side didn't know about. And they're going to take it up to Judge Ito and they're going to lay it out before him and say, here, Judge, see there? See there? We've got we to show this to the jury. We've got to show this to the jury. 
Evidence, new evidence, new evidence. There's stuff here you didn't know about. Didn't know about. Let me tell you something, brethren. Let me tell you something. Let me tell you. Here's where we're going. Let's go into the court of heaven. Let's go into the court of heaven. God is on the bench. And he has all the evidence. All the evidence. Everything has been discovered. There is nothing hidden for him. Secret sin on earth is open scandal in heaven. God knows all about it. Now, dear ones, that is, that is devastating. Devastating if we are not in Jesus Christ. Devastating. But let me tell you something. Let me tell you. It is comforting to us. It's comforting to us that he knows it all. Because knowing it all, he has declared us not simply to be not guilty, he has declared us to be righteous, righteous in his holy sight. Who? Who shall lay anything to the charge of God's elect? Who? 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 It is Christ. It is God. It is God that justifies. Who is he? He's the king of glory. He's the sovereign. He's the sovereign. He is the judge who knows all together about me. And yet he has looked on me in Christ and he has said to me, you are righteous in my sight. And I can find nothing. I can find nothing to lay against you. Nothing with which to bring you in guilty. Nothing. 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 Do we have to worry? Someone's going to come in and say, hey, look what I have on Randy Seaver. That wretched scoundrel. Look what he did. Here's evidence. God said, I knew all about it. Yeah. Knew all about it. I knew what a skunk he was. I knew it. I knew. Wretch. I knew it. Oh, he was a rebel. He was a rebel. He, he came out of the womb speaking lies. When the truth of God was preached to him, he stopped his ears. He said, I don't want to hear that stuff. God had another plan. Oh, hail sovereign love that first began that scheme to rescue fallen men. Hail sovereign, free, eternal grace that gave my soul a resting place. Hail sovereign love. That's our hope. I will remember their sins and their iniquities against them. No more. Who is he that condemneth? It is Christ that died. Yea, rather that is risen again, who is even at the right hand of God, who also makes intercession for us. And is he going to stand there and say, okay, I'm not going to be the intercessor for the brethren anymore. I'm not going to be the accuser of the brethren. No. No. Who shall separate us? from the love of Christ, shall tribulation or distress or famine or nakedness or peril or sword? Nay! Nay! In all these things, we are more than conquerors through Him that loved us. For I have been persuaded and now stand persuaded, says the Apostle Paul, that neither death nor life nor angels nor principalities nor powers nor things present nor things to come nor height nor depth nor any other creature shall be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus, our Lord. We're going to have you come now.
and give a response. And then after lunch, we will pick up with the discussion that we normally would have had uh, at this point. And uh, we will also not have <coughs> one whole discussion on this, but I think we may take a couple of pertinent passages of scripture, scriptures that have been covered here, and maybe have two or three people just say how I would interpret that as an all-male, how I would interpret that as a female. And uh, the passage in Jeremiah, passage in uh, Ezekiel that was mentioned, passage in Romans 9, and the passage in Hebrews uh, chapter 8. Come along. I'm glad I'm in the midst of grace, man. Uh, uh, first of all, let me say, I have a reason to believe what I believe. And in responding to our brother Randy, I thank him for what he's given us this morning because we're in agreement. We know who the king is. And I think everyone here is in full agreement that we know who the king is. One of the problems when we face uh, the issues that we're facing is we try to tell another person what they believe if they are don't happen to agree with us. We think we know the other side real well. And uh, I don't need to have anyone tell me what I believe or what I'm supposed to believe. I believe what the scripture teaches. And I thank God for Brother Fred yesterday. And I thank God for Ephesians chapter 2, verse 7. Because here's the only area that I find that I disagree with my brethren. Here, and that is Ephesians 2, 7 speaks of the purpose of God in redemption. That in the ages to come, he might show the exceeding riches of his grace and his kindness toward us through Christ Jesus. And the emphasis to me there is on the ages, in the ages to come. Not age to come, but ages to come. And therefore, I look for a literal fulfillment of Revelation chapter 20. I believe that there is a purpose in Revelation 20. I believe it's a purpose to reveal to man once and for all and forever that man needs to be born of God. He can live through a silver age or a golden age, and if he doesn't have a new heart, he's still lost. For we find that he's a rebel at heart, and at the end, he'll align himself with Satan. And uh, uh, these are things that, uh, just a little area where I would uh, disagree. And I, um, I like to think of the purpose of God under the Old Covenant. I believe God's choice of Israel was for a purpose, and that was to produce the Messiah the one who would bear our sins in his own body on the tree, the one who would be made a curse for us. And I see the covenants of the Old Testament, and I'm thinking of the Abrahamic covenant. It's a covenant of grace. And the covenant made with David in 2 Samuel 7, and rehearsed in Psalm 89, Psalm 78, and other places. That's a covenant of grace. And culminating in the new covenant and as our brother mentioned and I like uh, I want to take a little section out of Galatians chapter 3 
and uh, he speaks of the Spirit of God coming upon the Gentiles as a fulfillment of the Abrahamic covenant. And God says some very precious things concerning Israel in relation to the Spirit of God. In, uh, uh, for instance, in Ezekiel chapter 36 and verse 26, uh, God promised the Israelite a new heart. That's what I got. He promised him not only a new heart, but he said, I'll put a new spirit within you. And in that same verse, he identifies that spirit as my spirit. My spirit within you. And God dwelled among Israel under the old covenant. And in Ezekiel chapters 10 and 11, he departs from Israel. And his departure coincided with the exile of Israel. And therefore, I look forward to that day when the Lord's presence with Israel and his spirit will coincide with the nation's restoration that our brother uh, Fred talked about yesterday. And the question is raised in the introduction this morning, how can this be? Well, we got to remember, thou bearest not the root, but the root thee. He, uh, Romans 11 and verse 16. How can God do this? God can do whatever he pleases. And uh, we talk about the sovereignty of God. God can do as he pleases. And God is dealing not only with Israel, and not only with his elect people, but he's dealing with the nations as well. And a good example is Ezekiel chapter 29. God rewards the nations. And uh, if God is pleased to reward Israel and bring them back into the covenant, he may well do it because God rewarded Nebuchadnezzar in Ezekiel chapter 29. Nebuchadnezzar wanted to take Tyre. And they labored at Tyre to take the city of Tyre. They never could. And they labored till every head was bald and every shoulder was peeled. And God says, I know what you did for me there in Tyre, but I'm going to reward you. I'm going to give you Egypt. I'm going to give you Egypt instead. Uh, they were doing a work for him. And there are many facets that come into, must be brought into consideration in relation uh, to eschatology or the future dealings of God. Now, the Abrahamic covenant is also spoken of in Isaiah in, as to future in relation to Israel. In Isaiah 32, verses 15 through 18, Isaiah associated the outpouring of the Spirit with Israel's restoration to a life of blessing. I only have a few minutes, so I'm not, going to, I'm not going to read all these verses. In Isaiah 44, verses 3 and 4, is of great interest. I will pour water on them that are thirsty. I'm glad that he's poured water on me. He made me thirsty. And the water has been poured. And the blessing of Abraham is seen 
as the Spirit coming on the Gentiles. But I believe that the coming age when God restores Israel is a prelude to the eternal kingdom. I see it as a prelude to it. We have the, there's a phrase that we've used continually this week, the now and the not yet. And I see the now and the not yet. I see the uh, kingdom age. If you want to call it the millennium, the thousand year reign as a prelude to the eternal reign of Christ. Uh, we like uh, John 1.29, don't we? Behold the Lamb of God that taketh away the sin of the world. Has the sin of the world been taken away? And the answer to that is yes and no. Because there's a lot of sin in the world. The sin of the world, there's a day coming. He's taking away the sin of the world from all his elect in this age. And in due time, he's going to take the sin, of the, the sin away from Israel, I believe. For the word of God speaks of their restoration in uh, Romans chapter 11. And I believe there's a day coming when sin is going to be eradicated from the universe. For that reason, I enjoy 1 Corinthians 15. I believe there's a chronological order in 1 Corinthians 15. Christ the firstfruits. Then they that are Christ said he's coming. And then he says, then cometh the end. And I always say, the end of what? What is the, the end of what he's coming? When he shall have delivered up the kingdom unto God and his Father, for he must reign till he hath put all enemies under his feet. And in that great uh, chapter Isaiah 65 and Isaiah 66 that looks forward to the kingdom. Uh, you find things there concerning the eternal state and you find things there, uh, verses that are mentioned with the eternal state that also have reference yet to a silver age for a sinner being accursed. At a hundred years, a sinner being a hundred years old shall be accursed. Uh, we have to fit that in somewhere. And that's why I believe there's a future uh, for Israel. And uh, very quickly, I'd just like to draw these things to a close. The new covenant in Jeremiah 31, the church is not mentioned. But Israel is. Yet in Ezekiel chapter 36 and verse 26, the promise of a new heart and a new spirit as being the Holy Spirit is identified there with my spirit as he speaks about. And therefore, I believe that we are in the new covenant today, just as Randy put it. I appreciate what he said. It is the Lord by his great redemption that he revealed to his own the grand truth of the new covenant. And he revealed it the night he was betrayed. This cup is the new covenant in my blood. 
And he cut the covenant on the cross on Calvary's hill. And his elect, not a one will be lost. There, there won't be any missing. And I loved what our brother Randy said. Romans 11.29 says the gifts and callings of God are without repentance. When God saved me, he knew everything I'd ever do. He knew every mistake I'd ever make. But you know, after 10 million years in eternity, there isn't a one skeleton going to come tumbling out of the closet that will ever embarrass God or me. We'll never be embarrassed because God knew it all when he saved me. He knew all about me. It is the Spirit of God who applies the redemption of Christ to his people. And that the, and the blessing of Abraham has come on the Gentiles. And I believe there's a day coming when it's going to be poured out upon Israel. And I thank God for it. I do. Now, the blessing of the Spirit of God in Galatians 3 is spoken of as a blessing of Abraham. When God said to Abraham, In thee and in thy seed shall all the families of the earth be blessed. And then in Galatians 3.16, he tells us who the seed is. He's not speaking of seeds. He's speaking of one person, the person of God's dear son. And then, when you get to the last verse in Galatians 3, he says, if you be Christ's, then are you Abraham's seed and heirs, according to the promise. Now, the present age of the church is a time when the apostle says, Israel is cast away. And Israel is set aside. Blindness in part has happened to Israel. Our brothers told us yesterday in Romans 11 says, until the fullness of the Gentiles become in. And Romans 11.15 says, if the casting away of them be the reconciling of the world. What shall the receiving of them be but life from the dead. I tell you, whenever I think of that verse in Ephesians 2, verse 7, that in the ages to come, he might show the exceeding riches of his grace and his kindness toward us through Christ Jesus. No matter what your view is of dispensations, and everybody that I've ever seen is a dispensationalist in one degree or another, because uh, we have to believe in at least two. Even John's a dispensationalist. <laughs> you have to believe in at least two, the old and the new. Uh, but uh, in the ages to come, the new is a lot better than the old. Oh, thank God for the new covenant. And what God has reserved in the future, beloved, that in the ages to come, he might show the exceeding riches of his grace and his kindness toward us through Christ Jesus. What a portion is ours in him. What a portion. Therefore, having said all that, therefore this blessed new covenant is our portion now.
It's ours now. Their sins and iniquities. Though I remember no more forever. I'm the prodigal. And you know, I don't know of another case in Scripture where we see God in a hurry. But he ran to meet me when I was coming. You know, our brother Randy talked about the Lord hitting a home run. And then he spoke about, it is God who worketh in you, both to will and to do of his good pleasure. I'm glad God's working in me. And uh, I hit a home run in Christ. It reminds me of when the New York Yankees were in the World Series a few years ago. And Brother Randy Jackson. Uh, no, not Randy Jackson. Uh, Reggie Jackson. He was up the bat. And he swung at that ball and he hit a home run. And he just, while the ball was going, he just started walking, you know. He just started walking down toward first base. Now, did he know that was a home run when he started to walk? He did. But I'll tell you this. He went all the way around and he touched every base. He touched every base. And you talk about the perseverance of the saints. We're complete in Christ. But brother, we're we tried to touch by the grace of God every base. Therefore, am I over time? Oh, well, I don't get to do this often, brother. And I didn't bring it. Well, never mind. See, the new covenant is our portion now. And it's a prelude of the things to come. Amen. When I go preach down there, I stay at his place and we stay up to the wee hours of the morning. He says, I'm a dispensationalist because I believe in two dispensations. And I say, he's the new covenant theologian because he believes in the new and old covenant. So it's not quite that simple. <laughs> <laughs>